Because of foreign wars we wage More to do with the colors blue and red Too many laws and too much government Can you tell me where the Constitution went? The Bill of Rights is just hanging by a thread So many people try to cross the border Politicians build a new world order Too many minds are convinced they should be led I've got to be free Welcome to today's broadcast of Tapping to the Truth. Hope you're having a fantastic day with all the usual caveats, of course. With you as always, I am indeed your relatively humble and mostly peaceful host, and I'm coming to you live from historic Rome County, Tennessee. But in case you're under a rock, uh, the Derek Chauvin, uh, the juries come back with the verdict. Not just one verdict, but three verdicts. They were told to consider three charges. And, um, well, this is a day that evidently mob rule and intimidation rules the day, and the rule of law doesn't, for better or for worse. For all the efforts of this particular judge, despite this judge's effort to kind of virtue signal that the importance of the court and and rule of law and his dressing down of Maxine Waters and her little incitement to violence over the weekend. If I was a police officer tomorrow or even later tonight, I, I don't think I would show up for my shift, and I don't think I would go back. And it's sickening to me to see some of these sycophants, uh, supposedly conservative outlets, out here discussing how, well, uh, the justice was served. Was it? Was justice served today? Because justice actually means the best possible 
ending for the accused based on the case that was built by the defense. We literally, literally had the judge in this case redefine for the jury to allow them to consider the murder three. To redefine – it is not in accordance with the Minnesota law. Minnesota law specifically makes the third-degree murder charge, the, uh, the, the malice charge, the, the reckless endangerment charge. By the letter of the law, requires an action not directed at a specific individual. Uh, essentially, I would be guilty of murder three in Minnesota if I went into a crowd and just started shooting indiscriminately. Sure, I didn't intend for one particular person to die, but my reckless actions was clearly intended for someone to die. That is the letter of the law, one of the laws, one of the charges that this group of jurors came back with a guilty verdict on. If you're here live, like uh, Chief, host of Simple Facts of Life, and Crazy Cajun, who's uh, helping us to go out to a larger live audience, a live audience uh, listening over at Late Night in the Midlands Network as well. Uh, haven't done the Tuesday thing over there in a bit, so I'll be leading you guys into Michael Vera when the Late Night in the Midlands show itself comes into play. haven't thanked you guys for listening at this point. Got to kind of jump in. I have other topics already laid out. I have guests coming in. In fact, uh, both guests scheduled tonight are returning guests. We've got Karen Strong, who's going to be joining us to talk about the insanity going on in California prisons. Transgender prisons are now required by California state law to be treated as the gender they identify, which has led to a huge request of transfers to prisons uh, that are not designed for their biological sex. And then we were going to talk about Biden's job plan in the second hour. Mark Mix, of course, president of the National Right to Work Committee. He's been on with me a few times here recently, quickly becoming one of my favorite guests to have on, uh, other than Ron Edwards, of course. Uh, Mark is going to be coming on to talk about this job plan and how it's little more than a payoff to all those political allies that – Barely there, Beijing Biden and the Democratic Party as a whole has had for a long time. It's a bit of a payoff to the unions, especially since the unions are getting the short staff, the short end of the stick, if you will, with a lot of the current efforts from the Biden administration. Operation pee pads and knee pads in full effect is not good for labor unions. So these were all planned weeks in advance. I, I was hoping actually – that this would be open and shut and that uh, the deliberation wouldn't take long, although usually a short deliberation comes back pretty quickly with guilty. Uh, that's pretty solid stuff when it comes to murder. Uh, usually the prosecution's done their job of establishing uh, beyond a reasonable doubt if they come back quickly. But here's the thing that's obvious. It's clear. 
justice was not served today. The rule of law was not served today because the, the prosecution did not make the case that George Floyd died as a result of anything that Chauvin did. Reasonable doubt was clearly established on a multitude of occasions. This judge literally gave every opportunity to get that guilty verdict and to allow for an appeal down the line that's going to let Derek Chauvin walk. As soon as this case gets heard in front of a judge that actually understands the law and is willing to rule in accordance with the law, this is overturned in a heartbeat. Murder two, they didn't make the case. Murder three, by the letter of the law in Minneapolis, in Minnesota, in, in the great state of Minnesota, no, it doesn't apply to this case. The judge intentionally allowed it to be added back on even though it doesn't apply. Manslaughter is the only thing that you had an outside shot at a legitimate conviction, and even then it was probably somewhere between a 20 to 35 percent chance maybe because the case still wasn't that good. They didn't make the argument that well, but the media, the, the lame, the lame legacy media, they didn't show people on a daily basis what the defense was doing. They didn't show people on a daily basis what the the prosecution was fouling up the, the first actual week of testimony, not week one, which was just a bunch of, well, I was there, and I had a feeling, which is nothing but prejudicial. It's not exploratory. It's not exculpatory. It does not belong in the courtroom. Any judge worth their salt would have not allowed any of that into their courtroom. They had a week of it. To try and convince this jury, oh, you should feel bad too. You should make your decision based on emotion, not on the facts. Forget about that nasty little beyond a reasonable doubt level. Forget that uh, fact that due process is a thing that you're here for and that you might someday find yourself on the other side and would definitely want all the due process you can get when that happens. Yeah, forget all about that. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Have a feeling with this person and vote accordingly. None of that should have been allowed. We had a whole week of testimony that had no business being in a courtroom. None. Zip. Nada. Doesn't belong there. Then you had a week of testimony where the first three days of the prosecution, their witnesses did a better job for the defense than they did for the state. Did you know that? If you weren't watching uh, Legal uh, Insurrection, if you weren't paying attention to their website, or if you weren't listening to a few of uh, a few of the conservative outlets out there that were trying to tell you what was being covered over at Legal Insurrection, then no, you probably did not because, the, again, legacy media sure as hell wasn't telling you. It was all about… Well, yes, it's clear-cut and it's obvious. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen. I don't care if you watch eight to nine minutes of that video. You do not know what happened that day. You cannot count yourself among the people who have seen the full extent of the videos, plural. Look at all of the body cam clearly. Clearly, Chauvin didn't even have his knee on Chauvin's, um, uh, Floyd's 
neck, hit it on his back and on the shoulder blade, up above. That's why the autopsies couldn't find any damage to the, to the neck or throat. The only argument you might have had was when Chauvin did not immediately recognize that George Floyd had lost consciousness and didn't begin giving him immediate medical, immediate medical treatment right then and there. That's the only case you maybe have. The involuntary manslaughter is your best bet of getting the conviction there. But that's not even the kind of manslaughter they went with in this case. And you come away with all three. This judge wanted this outcome. He wouldn't have allowed the week's worth of emotional testimony if he didn't. He would not have allowed this jury to not have been sequestered from the beginning because how can you tell me? I mean I, I – I'm angry at the jury to a degree, but then part of me understands why the jury did this because how long would it be before they're in the crossfires of the mob rule? We've already seen one of the defense, uh, one of the defense witnesses who testified having their home vandalized, smeared with blood in a a pig's head left there, uh, a former police officer that was also involved with this case, a same thing. You want to tell me that even – and the judge, of course, well, I, I told them not to watch the news. So there's that. I'm sorry. I didn't find out about these acts of intimidation uh, from the mainstream legacy news outlets. They really weren't wanting to report on that, were they? But you can't tell me that they didn't find out about this. I'm sorry if you could get on Facebook, if you could get on Twitter, if you were on Instagram. You still knew that this is what was happening. It was going on, and it was utterly ridiculous. you got people running around right now high fine and think they've accomplished something special. Oh, we finally got justice. But you didn't get justice. Quick shout out to uh, Bigfoot who's joined us in the chat room. Hey, Big, uh, glad to see you back. This wasn't justice. This wasn't justice. We're talking about how proud you were of George Floyd. Now, you can understand the family talking like this and feeling vindicated to a degree, but you cannot lose sight of the fact that George Floyd had taken an inordinate amount of drugs. Well beyond the lethal dosage, and that he had a pre-existing heart condition, which probably played a huge role. And so much of that testimony was suppressed, and they made an effort to keep it from the jury. So, but a lot of it still got there. Then there was this carbon monoxide report that wasn't introduced as evidence. This on the very last day of the uh, state's prosecution side of the trial, where the judge – literally sees this being offered up and told them, you can have your rebuttal witness, but if you discuss this report, I will declare a mistrial. They played with it. They toyed with it, and then eventually they went for it. They got that testimony in, which is completely completely outside of the realm of much bearing. If anything, it's one more factor that also would kind of help make the case that George Floyd was not 
solely uh, – George Floyd did not die solely because of what Derek Chauvin was doing to him, which kind of, again, takes the murder and the manslaughter off the table. Again, maybe that involuntary manslaughter that they probably should have went with if they really wanted to get a conviction, that might have might have made the day. I don't – I can't help but wonder. What is this day going to be remembered as in the future? I mean, it's already 420, right? It's 420 all day long. If you're part of the marijuana culture, your freaking holiday today. Maybe in a little while that's all that you'll remember this for. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe half of the country is so blitzed right now from token all day long that maybe they won't remember this day at all. Only people like you and me are going to have to suffer through the memory of the fact that that the rule of law was ignored today. That a man's life was ruined for doing his job in accordance with what was allowed and permitted by the police department for which he worked. And he didn't even use the hold as prescribed. He had his knee on the dude's shoulder. Clear and obvious that that's where he was an overwhelming majority of the time from all the police officers' body cams. That one video with the eight-plus minutes that everybody's seen, not at the right angle to see that. The case of that video showing something far worse than it would have looked like. And there were mistakes made. The mistake they made was letting George Floyd get out of that vehicle in the first place. But would there have been a change in the actions from BLM and Antifa and the Democrats' elected office holders if he had died in the back of that police car because they wouldn't let him out? George Floyd most likely was going to die that day regardless because he was, he was too far gone. The fentanyl and whatever else he had taken, it was interacting between the stress of dealing with the police… And the, the heart condition, the blockage that he had, these things in, uh, in conjunction, they probably would have ended him even if the police hadn't showed up in time to catch him there. Under normal circumstances, uh, if this hadn't happened, I was going to spend a good part of this first segment just going off about Maxine Waters. But what's the point? Maxine Waters did the same thing Maxine Waters always does. From the time that she was a freshman uh, in the House of Representatives and was standing up about the Los Angeles uprising. You know, the Rodney King riots? The uprising. Things that Donald J. Trump said – on January 6th, do not come to within a half of a scintilla of what Maxine Waters did over this weekend, where she grandstand and virtue signaled and, and took a little trip to Minneapolis. 
could have stayed in D.C. where she's supposed to be working right now. There were protests there, too. Could have gotten in front of a camera there. Could have gotten in front of a microphone there. But no, she has to go. She was wanting the riots, too. She trades on the violence. She is a race baiter, and she's trying to hide the fact that she's one of the most corrupt politicians currently serving. And whoo, that's saying a lot, isn't it? You don't believe me? Go do your homework. I'm not making it up. Max Seed has been on the verge of being booted out of the House by Democrats on a couple of times because of the time that she has spent in the House Finance Committee pushing an unusually large amount of money in the direction of the banks for which her husband is a major player. The fact that, that these people want to pretend like somehow, some way, Donald Trump incited an insurrection, which I'm sorry, your definition of insurrection needs to be adjusted. We've talked about that. But to say what Donald Trump said was incitement of violence and then what Maxine Waters said was just anti-Maxine being anti-Maxine. We need a vaccine for anti-Maxine at this point. Way out Waters is way out there, and she's on a limb. This is what she does. She values and trades in violence and then gets plenty of cover, plenty of cover from people like Nancy, Mimi, Pelosi. And, of course, don't forget the media, the people like Don Lemon. Oui, oui, Don Lemon. Of course, of course, Maxine Waters did not mean this. Of course, it is absurd to think that her saying we should get more confrontational in a city where we've been burning it down for a year. We need to be more confrontational. How do you do that exactly if you're not inciting violence? I mean, if you've got a reasonable explanation that I can actually look at the tone and tenor of what she said at the time and feel like, okay, yeah, maybe she could have meant that. I'm willing to listen. I really am. I would love to give Maxine Waters the benefit of the doubt because I have found a way. I have found a way over the years of doing this talk show to give Nancy Pelosi the benefit of the doubt. It happened one time, but it happened. I found a way to give AOC the benefit of the doubt a couple of times. Even applaud her on a stand. Believe it or not, made me feel real creepy, but it happened. <sighs> Has not happened with Maxine Waters yet. Wants to nationalize the gas lines. <sighs> like I said, wherever you are, <laughs> if you are a police officer at any level, Anywhere in the country, I don't think I would return for another shift. I mean at this point, you can be a good cop doing your job and actually just do your job. Do it the way you're supposed to do it, and you can get caught up with something like this because the media and the Bane crowd comes for your head. And the more and more we let mob rule – Rule the day. The more and more we need to get the police just out of the way and then just let the mob come for those of us who are prepared for the mob. They want to defund the police. I'm on board with that right now. Let's do a temporary defunding of the police. That's 
what they want on the streets. Don't don't believe the craziness they may tell you. Oh, well, look, we're just trying to reimagine. You're reimagining is a complete and total ignoring of the rule of law. That's your reimagining. You want to hold the people that are not part of your little clique accountable to the same standards and stretch those standards outside of what the law actually says to go get them. You don't believe in due process. You only want unarmed people that are going to be lemons and that are going to either kiss the ring or bend over and kiss your backside. That's what you want from all Americans. And guess what? Most Americans simply aren't going to go that route. Now, I don't want a country without police. I think we need them. I think we've seen exactly why we need them. But I can't, with a clear conscience, tell a – Now, I mean I want every bad cop taken out of the way. I want every action of actual, honest-to-goodness racism dealt with. But I think it has to be clear that that's what happened, and just because you watch something on eight minutes worth of a 45, 47, 48-minute video in its entirety and didn't bother to watch any of the other body cam video footage either, I'm sorry. You don't know what happened there. Oh, yes, but you see, the, uh, the jury, they got, they got all that information. The jury got all this. You know what other information the jury got? The jury got to see these activists harassing and attacking, berating, and, oh, yes, let us not forget, destroying private property of people that were involved in this trial. You think that doesn't resonate? We saw a case for a man in Utah who spent 10 bucks sent 10 bucks to a uh, Trump-related fund about the time of the <clears throat> insurrection uh, BS. We saw a man in Utah being doxxed by a reporter locally for having done that. Oh, you gave 10 bucks to the orange man that's bad. So we're coming after you. Did you think they wouldn't have done that to each and every one of these jurors? And that's why initially I was mad. Cowards! Cowards, every one of you! But it's not like this would be 15 minutes and done. These people are relentless because right now they're being allowed to win. Right now they're being allowed to do this kind of BS because the rule of law is thrown out the books. At some point, at some point we have to return to the rule of law or we're done. Period. There's not much hope left right now for the restoration of our republic as is. But we give up rule of law, then it's over. And where else do we go? The prosecution didn't make the case for murder one. The prosecution didn't make the case for murder two. But murder two uh, – no, no, I'm sorry. Murder one wasn't even – uh, charged, okay? Prosecution didn't make the case for murder two, but it would have applied. Prosecution didn't make the case for murder three, but murder three doesn't apply anyway by the letter of the law for the great state of Minnesota. They they twisted some of it, and they ignored the fact that uh, it pretty much directly says in the law uh, targeting individuals, plural. 
It's right there. Well, it's about the intent of the law. No, it's about how the law is written. That's why laws are written very carefully, or at least they're supposed to be. The manslaughter was an outside shot, but at least that was a case they kind of sort of made a little bit of. But the standard here is beyond a reasonable doubt, and there is no way – I'm sorry. There is no way somebody could have seen what the defense had offered up, understood what reasonable doubt means, saw the case that the prosecution made, and come away with a guilty verdict. Those people did not follow their instructions. Those people simply didn't want to face the crowds. They didn't want to have people point at them and blame them for the violence that would have happened tonight there and all across the freaking country everywhere where they've been trying to burn down cities for over a year now as is. They didn't want that on their conscience. It's okay to offer up a sacrificial lamb in the interest of satiating the crowd. See, here's the problem, boys and girls. When you try to make that type of satiation… That's one bloodthirsty crowd that will never be satisfied. Nope. Not now. Not ever. Stay with me. Going to take that mid-hour break, see if I can't get a hold of Karen while we're at it. Uh, don't go anywhere, guys. Does anybody know the real definition of racist? Hello, I'm Ron Edwards on today's page from the Edwards Notebook. During the Democrat Party 2020 presidential election primaries, then-Senator Kamala Harris called Joe Biden racist. No surprises there because most white Democrats are racist and destructive enemies of this wonderful republic. As is Nasty Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden, etc., now, many Democrats, including Joe Biden, believe that if you are in favor of enforcing U.S. immigration laws and vetting people at the border, you are racist. Democrats also believe that if you prefer good moral standards or Judeo-Christian ethics, you are racist. Democrats also promote the insane concept that requiring high achievement for black American students is racist because they prefer blacks to be dummied down, easy-to-control dolts, on the Democrat plantation of low standards and low-brow living. By the way, to be racist is to have an unreasonable bent against others, to believe others are inherently inferior. Democrats think blacks are inferior and thus seek to lower all standards to accommodate those they believe have less ability, which could destroy our republic in the process. Mm -hmm. I'm Ron Edwards. Check out the RonEdwards.com. Sponsored by the Tri-County Liberty Coalition. Let's talk about guns purely from a self-defense perspective. How many people are there in America? Well, if you said just over 300 million, you're correct. It's closer to 325 million. Now, let me ask you this. How many acts of violence are there per year in America? Well, if you said just over 1 million, you're correct. It's approximately 1.2 to 1.3 million. So if there are just over 300 million people in America and just over 1 million acts of violence occurring in America every year, what are your chances of being the victim of one of those attacks? Well, if you said 1 in 300, you're correct. 
I don't know about you, but I don't like those odds. I know your odds might change depending on where you live, but if you live in an area with less crime, wouldn't that make someone else's odds go up? I mean, the number of people in America didn't change, and the number of violent attacks per year didn't change. Some of the highest crime rates in America are in Democrat-run cities where there are the strictest and most restrictive gun laws in the country, putting good people... All right, so uh, yeah, I'm going to cut uh, Dan a little short there because uh, we now have on the line uh, a lady who she just enjoys rallying up uh, feminists around the world. Uh, YouTube channel Girl Writes What, uh, personal blog called Own Your – well, I'm going to say stuff, but she's a little more – uh, we'll say dramatic with that. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Uh, men's rights activist, uh, Ms. Karen Strong. Uh, Karen, uh, again, thank you so very much for joining us once again. And before we dive into anything, how are you doing today? Um, you know, it's 50 degrees out. Uh, might even be a little bit warmer, Fahrenheit. So uh, I'm, I'm super happy way up here in the, uh, you know, the Arctic Circle where I live, so... <laughs> All right. So uh, I, I guess we can uh, kind of jump right in with uh, uh, today's topic. Uh, we had actually talked a little bit before about when California passed this law, and, and they passed a law uh, for the listeners, in case you missed my open at the uh, opening segment when we were talking about today's broadcast. They passed a law that basically said that transgendered prisoners were to be treated in accordance with their gender identities. Uh, that went into full effect now, and the prison system is literally being overwhelmed. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of requests by uh, transgendered uh, identifying prisoners requesting to be transferred to a prison that is designated for the sex of their identity as opposed to their biological sex. Uh, we did talk a little bit about it then. We talked about how uh, it seemed to be opening a can of worms, essentially. Well, now that can of worms has been fully opening, and we're starting to see some of the results. So uh, where are you at right now with your thoughts on this, and are you concerned any at all that we may see this spread from California uh, throughout the United States and possibly even up into Canada? Well, in Canada, it's been going on for a while already. Um, we actually have had – this has been uh, a thing for uh, longer than it has been in California uh, up here in Canada, and we even have a case of a uh, female prisoner being impregnated and giving birth to twins um, because uh, a transgender biological male uh, who identified as a woman got a transfer into a women's prison. So, I mean, like it's – this is this is nothing new. Like we're your canary in the coal mine uh, when it comes to trans issues. So um, other than maybe New York, uh, New York City, uh, we're a step ahead of you guys. So and my feelings on this have not changed. Um, I don't. Uh, I don't. I'm not particularly persuaded uh, by the idea that uh, someone who identifies as a woman. Uh, despite being biologically male, uh, should be in a women's prison. I am totally on board with 
finding some kind of safer option for transgendered prisoners uh, because they are exquisitely vulnerable to assaults in prison, particularly trans women in men's prisons. Um, they they tend to to be uh, victimized uh, much uh, more frequently than than other you know than their male counterparts, their cisgender counterparts in the prison. Um, but uh, but when you actually have um, when you have a situation where trans men, so female to male transsexuals, are requesting to be transferred into men's prisons because that and there are very a lot fewer of those uh, re- making the request, being talked out of it because it is a danger to their safety. Um, you know, like I, I can't, I can't condone uh, putting trans women in the same pr- and based on self declaration. You know, they don't have to hormonally transition. They don't have to surgically transition. Uh, they just have to say. I feel like I'm a woman, and uh, and that has to be considered uh, to be their gender ident- gender identity. And uh, so you're just you're just looking at there's going to be a whole bunch of fakers, fake, 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 uh, who just want to be the fox who gets let into the hen house. All right. So at at this point, you say you're, you're in favor of safer options for the transgender prisoners. Uh, and that was kind of uh, my follow-up question was going to be anyway uh, in regards to do you have any idea what might be one of those safer options? Maybe a designated cell block with uh, a different uh, activity time so there's not any interaction, uh, a new adjacent level to some of these, uh, anything that makes sense. Uh, is there a simple solution or is this something that uh, we really need to spend more time trying to work out? Because like you said, uh, prison is not a place where people should be going to be victimized uh, and becoming that hardened uh, criminal when they come out that maybe they weren't when they went in. Uh, the idea should still be an attempt at least uh, rather than just virtue signaling but an honest attempt at trying to rehabilitate. It seems to be a, a lost notion these days, but uh, just call me old-fashioned I guess. <laughs> I, I completely agree. Uh, you know, like it used to be um, back when they spelled jail, uh, the word jail, G-A-O-L, um, in Old English, uh, men and women uh, were housed in the same prisons and even in the same cells, right? And, uh, and we solved that problem right, by building separate prisons for men and women. And maybe we could solve this problem um, by building separate facilities uh, or having, like you said, having uh, a segregated portion of of an existing jail or prison set aside and different activity times and all of those things. Because, I mean, when, when you actually look at, you know, the victimization rates and all of that. And I mean, this is just out in wider society as well as in prison. Um, trans people are vulnerable and no one should, uh, should be, you know, uh, against keeping people safe uh, when they're being sort of uh, disproportionately targeted for violence and, and for victimization. 
but you know, like when when you when you think about the the way we've gone so far to the other side of things, right? That that all you have to do is declare yourself the opposite sex, um, and you can you can have a full beard and you know uh, a prison uh, body, right? And uh, and you can basically just declare yourself a woman, and and the law, according to the law, they have to take that declaration in good faith and consider transferring you to a woman's prison. Um, I, I'm just sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just. I'm not okay with that. And uh, and even in cases where you have a situation where somebody may be genuinely trans, uh, maybe even hormonally transitioned, but uh, surgically not, and they're impregnating female prisoners, uh, th- th- it's not okay. It's it's not okay. And yet it's happening. It's happening in Canada, it's happening in California, and it will happen elsewhere in the United States. Yeah, yeah I mean, ultimately, there still has to be some level of common sense applied. I, I don't think you can just take somebody at their word where maybe they've had a run-in with a guard, and now all of a sudden I'm transgender today because I want to go over uh, to that other prison over there uh, and, and well, unfortunately, and, the way the California law is set I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, what, I, what I wanted to say, too, is that most women's prisons are minimum security. Uh, they, they are not as hardcore in terms of uh, trying to prevent escape, in terms of you know, having the same number of, of guards per inmate. Uh, there's a lot more freedom in most women's prisons for, for prisoners to – for inmates to – kind of do what they want to do with their day and and things like that, right? So you're looking at a completely different, and this is because female prisoners tend to be less violent than male prisoners. The risk of violence uh, among female inmates is less. So there is just, the security is more lax, right? Now you bring in uh, a bunch of males into that environment and, uh, and you're looking at now the female prison population, uh, the female inmates are vulnerable to being victimized by those biological males who may not be uh, expressing their gender identity in good faith. And even the ones who, you know, uh, we had uh, Jessica Yaniv here in Canada, you know, uh, goes out of uh, her way to look the part and act the part, but just absolutely nuts, crazy, just crazy, out of her mind, nuts. And, uh, you know, she's assaulted multiple people. Um, she pretends to be disabled, and then she uh, she hits people with her walker and then runs down the street like a natural-born sprinter. You know, and she she tried to persecute a whole bunch of mostly first-generation immigrant women from uh, mostly Muslim uh, backgrounds and Sikh backgrounds basically took them to the human rights court because they didn't feel comfortable waxing her lady balls. And so I'm just, I'm looking at it like these are some of the people who are actually using their transgender status to persecute others. And, uh, and, we definitely, uh, when when you think about it, uh, these are criminals in prison. Why why would we trust 
people who have been incarcerated for committing crimes to act in good faith on just this one thing? <laughs> well, that's a, a pretty good question, actually. Uh, but of course, naturally, down here in the states, Karen, uh, uh, we have nothing but uh, racial oppression in our court system. So uh, obviously, uh, three quarters of everyone in prison is actually innocent, but the victim of racism. Uh, at least that's what we're told every day. Uh, well, uh, you know, it, I, it I would counter. I would counter that ninety-five percent of people in prison are male. And so uh, maybe we need to equalize the numbers of men and women in prison. You know, if we're just going to go by the numbers. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just raw data without any context. You're you're on to something, yeah. Kara. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I I don't know. It just seems like you know there there is a very small actual problem, and then the effort. To correct it is more about virtue signaling than actually trying to solve that problem. And in the effort to virtue signal, they've created a much larger problem. A am I am I describing that incorrectly in any way? Not at all. Not at all. I agree that uh, t you know finding a way to incarcerate transgender people uh, and keep them safe from uh, being victimized. Is is that's a problem, right? But I don't think that this this law in California is any kind of solution, um, and I don't think that uh, that we're going down a very good path in terms of uh, basically denying biological women uh, the right to be safe while incarcerated. And I'm not going to say that biological women are always safe while incarcerated even before this because, you know, women can actually victimize each other. I don't know if anybody has ever noticed, you know, the mean girl phenomenon and and other uh, even more blatant and physical forms of bullying that go on between women. But um, women are not angels is, is all I'm saying. But at the same time, when you look at the physical size differences and the strength, particularly upper body strength differences between men and women, and then you're, you, these guys don't even need to hormonally transition, let alone surgically, and and they're incarcerated for a reason. Um, I, I'm just, I, I just don't think this is wise at all. So so let me get this straight. What you're actually saying is that women who are in prison are also in prison for a reason? <laughs> yes. Yes, actually, often women in prison are in prison for a much more severe reason than the men in prison because um, – at least proportionally – because uh, women who just do nonviolent crimes and, and stuff, they, they don't generally go to prison. Um the uh, the the discount the the criminal justice discount for women starts at uh, the things like stop and frisk right you know where it's like ninety seven percent males who are targeted for that um, women are less likely to be stopped when they're committing a crime then they're more likely to be let off with a warning uh, they're less likely to be uh, arrested when stopped they're le less likely to be charged when arrested. They're less likely to be prosecuted when charged. Uh, they're, they get better plea deals. They're less. They're half as likely to be convicted. And uh, when they're convicted, 
this is all things apples to apples comparisons. When they're convicted, they're half uh, half as likely to be sentenced to incarceration, and their sentences are 60% shorter than men's for the exact same crimes in the exact same circumstances. It's no wonder there's only 5% of our prison populations in Canada and the United States that are women. Yeah. I'm sure to some folks that comes as a newsflash, but it, it, again, it just leads you to uh, uh, the application of numbers using some of the, uh, you know, some of the information that goes along, the, the nuances that go around it, uh, the facts, if you will. Uh, yeah. Karen, uh, we're quick. We're quickly running out of time, but before we do, I wanted to ask you a little bit. Uh, I know for the past year plus, COVID has had everything on lockdown. It's really kept you from uh, going out and being active the way you uh, had uh, been accustomed to. Uh, does it look like things are opening up a little bit? Are you going to be hitting the road again, uh, uh, doing those uh, great talks that you do where you confront uh, these feminists and uh, uh, that kind of <laughs> awesome thing that I've really enjoyed you doing? Uh, or is it still pretty much on COVID hold right now? Or, or have you even decided that you just like it too much staying at home now to get out and mess with all that crazy? Oh, kind of a little of column A and a little of column B there. Uh I do like it at home. I've always been a homebody. I've always hated traveling. I just, I have done it because I kind of had to. Um, all the conferences right now that are on my schedule are virtual, um, you know, where I'll, I'll just basically give them a video presentation and do a question and answer via Zoom or something like that. Uh, and, uh, I mean, we're still uh, pretty locked down. I mean, technically it's illegal for me to go visit my parents. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, just it's crazy stuff. You know, I, I love you guys uh, uh, on our northern border. I really do. But you, you folks have managed to put some people in office that even makes our current lot uh, kind of scary looking in comparison. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know what else to say. Karen, yeah, real quick. Honestly, you're right. Go ahead. You're right. You're absolutely right. We've uh, we've let our our government get get out of control. So, real quick, let everybody know where they can find all your work, and if they're interested in reaching out, and then if you're still inviting people to follow you on social media, feel free to share your handles as well. Basically, anything you want to share right now, uh, go right ahead. Well, just. Uh, Google my name, Karen Strawn, uh, or Google Girl Writes What. You'll find my YouTube channel. And uh, I'm not on Twitter anymore. They banned me for annoying the wrong male feminist, and uh, so I'm I'm done with that. Uh, I am on Parlor occasionally, um, and uh, that that's I'm I'm I've pretty much social media kind of quitting that feels really good. So. Uh, I do not blame you. Although I did hear today that uh, Apple is finally letting the new Parler back onto their platform, so maybe Parler will uh, be in more people's ease of use uh, mailbox. So uh, try to resist the temptation. <laughs> Although I think you're to that uh, point right now, Karen. I don't think that's much of a not much of a temptation anymore. <laughs> there you go. Well, anyway, thank you so much for having me. And uh, and I always enjoy talking to you. 
All right. And, and always, I enjoy our conversations, too. Thank you so much for taking a little of your time and spending it with us. Uh, you have a great rest of your evening, and I look forward to our next opportunity to chat. Thanks very much. Take care. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, that, of course, is Miss Karen Strong. Uh, there is a link to I think I linked Girl Writes What in the show description here at BTR. So feel free to check that out when you are ready and willing and, you know, if you want to. <laughs> I, I highly recommend it, especially if you like a chick. Uh, <laughs> and I say that uh, meaning it in the most awesome of ways. If you like a lady who's willing to face off with those who name themselves as being feminist, and who makes the point that men have rights too. If you like hearing that from the female perspective, she does a phenomenal job of exactly that. So take your time. Go go visit the site. Uh, give her a follow if you get over there and decide you like it well enough. And uh, her, uh, her blog, Own Your Stuff, only she says something else. Also worth a good read. And uh, actually, I think I may have linked uh, over to another one of the uh, men's rights sites. Now that I'm thinking about it, one of the men's rights uh, websites that she contributes to. Uh, so I forget which one that is now. I need to double check. But I think that's what's there. But just look up Girl Rights What on YouTube. That'll That'll take you everywhere you need to go. So – Without having been said, it is one of those things where I wanted to talk a little more about this California law because, again, we see stuff in California. When we see stuff in New York that tends to make its way across the country if we let it, and this really is a case of opening up a can of worms that we just – we don't need to open it up in that fashion. We need – to find a way, I mean, for the folks that are legitimately suffering from uh, gender dysphoria, they don't need to be uh, trapped in a men's prison kind of deal. But at the same time, they're in prison for a reason, and they probably don't need to be in a women's prison. So I'm thinking that a reasonable solution should be there for those folks that are legitimately in that category. And I think there needs to be some way of kind of sorting through, other than uh, taking their word for it, who may actually be suffering from gender dysphoria and who may actually just be trying to, I don't know, game the system. Uh, not that a criminal would ever do such a thing. I mean, why would a criminal game the system? That's just insanity, right? Uh, we will not mention the fact that they are in prison for a reason. <laughs> we won't talk about that at all because that kept coming up with Carrot. Uh, and I do really enjoy talking to Carrot. I do. Um, I'm reminded of the great Canadian uh, freedom fighters, and there's a lot of them out there. I mean we've lost one in the form of Kel. Uh, Karen, of course, uh, does her thing fighting for men's rights, and as such, I, I honestly believe that she's uh, a, a voice for common sense because that's how she approaches the issues, which is also why the uh, folks on the left, particularly the feminists, really have a hard time uh, <laughs> dealing with her. 
So definitely worth uh, checking out. Now, uh, because this broadcast is rebroadcast on terrestrial radio and is often broken up into one-hour increments, I'm going to reset the hour. So you guys who are here live, Bigfoot, Cajun, Chief, uh, everybody hanging out over uh, at uh, Late Night in the Midlands chat, which right now, as far as I can tell, is probably just MV. Uh, you guys stay right where you're at. Hour number two will start in just a minute or two. And, uh, you know, for those of you that I'm saying goodbye to for now, just remember, don't take my word for it. Definitely, definitely don't take their word for it. Be prepared to put in some effort and, most importantly, to use your brain if you really want to tap into the truth. Stay safe. Stay healthy. And uh, be smart, even if it goes against your nature. Above the gun, hear the wind across the plain. There is no fear that I must contain, and I'm in the eye of the hurricane. I see the sweat across his brow. Poised to draw in eternal now. The fastest one is the one who's slain. I still stand, got the better aim. And I'm in the eye of the hurricane.
say is it a crucial stage? It's not because of foreign wars we wage. More to do with the colors blue and red. Too many laws and too much government. Can you tell me where the Constitution went? The Bill of Rights is just hanging by a thread. So many people try to cross the border. Politicians build a new world order. Too many minds are convinced they should be led. I've got to be free the way God made men. And I won't be ruled by the dancing wind. Right, you don't defend. They say you're safe, but they don't make sense. Dangerous one will not turn into guns. All the things you know is that before. All your body made out of foreign shores. Come a day when you see real hell's pay. I've got to be free. Welcome to today's broadcast of Tapping to the Truth. Hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are and whatever you may be doing with all the usual caveats, of course. With you as always, I'm your ever so humble and, you know, mostly peaceful host, Tim Tapp, coming to you live from historic Rome County, Tennessee. And uh, we are live, as is often the case here on Tuesdays, uh, and we have a slightly larger than usual live audience as we are now simulcasting as well uh, with the Late Night in the Midlands Network. So glad to be a part of that. Uh, thank you guys so much for becoming uh, associated, affiliated, uh, letting Tap into the Truth be part of the late night family, if you will. And of course, uh, we are also rebroadcast over great uh, terrestrial stations across the country, stations like KYAH 540 AM, Utah's Talk Authority, just to name one. Uh, I often name them because they were the first, they were the flagship of those uh, terrestrial rebroadcasters, and I definitely love having you guys listening. But for your benefit, since you do hear a rebroadcast, broadcast. Uh, the Time of the Light broadcast is April 20th. Yes, it's 420 all day. Yeah, yeah, make all the jokes, especially you guys out in Utah. you got to deal with your neighbors over in Colorado. Uh, it is 2021, and it's a few brief moments after 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we've had a lot of news breaking earlier as uh, the Chauvin trial has come to a conclusion, at least this round of it. Uh, jury finds Derek Chauvin guilty on all three counts. And uh, a lot going on there, but there are other things going on around the country and uh, things that are of import, things that are easily being lost 
uh, here and there and in between. And to help discuss one of those very important things uh, is a gentleman that you have heard here before. Uh, He's a great guest, but uh, not just because of uh, the fact that he's usually right, which he normally is, but he is the president of the National Right to Work Committee. Uh, He is the president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation as well. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show once again, Mark Mix. And uh, Mark, before we jump into anything else at all, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great, Tim. I and you know I'm I'm right most of the time, but tonight I get to tap into the truth. So I I uh, I'm excited about that, and we'll have a good conversation about uh, some other issues that uh, don't make as many headlines as some of the news of the day, but important issues just the same. So I'm doing fine. Thanks for the opportunity to be on with you again. Oh, absolutely. I like I mentioned to you off air, the honor is mine, and I always appreciate. Uh, any guest who comes here once, it's, it's a blessing. Any guest who's willing to come back, uh, that uh, it's a very good thing. So anyway, <laughs> one of those one of those very important issues that we're talking about, and we've spent some time talking about it on the show already, and that is Joe Biden's so-called jobs plan. Uh, like a lot of these other bills that have been pushed. Uh, very much at a warp speed mentality. The Democrats are trying to to move these different various things. They're trying to nationalize voting. They're trying to to impede on our uh, Second Amendment rights. And, of course, they're pushing hard to impede on those First Amendment rights as well. But this bill, they call it a jobs bill, and just like the others, it's pretty much anything but what they're calling it in this case. I don't see where it looks like anything other than a payoff to their political allies, and in this particular case, some of those political allies seem to be those labor unions that have been kind of getting the short end of the stick with some of these other policies the Democrats have been pushing. Yeah, indeed, Tim, and and it's kind of interesting because union officials, uh, and I'm not talking about rank-and-file workers across the country, but I'm talking about union officials back in here in Washington, D.C., spent a lot of time, talent, and treasure, um, not their treasure, other people's treasure, to get Joe Biden to the White House because he said he would be the best president that the unions have ever had. And what really he is is the best president that forced unionism could ever contemplate because everything that he's done so far – has been harmful to workers. It's benefited union officials to some degree. And this bill, to your point, the so-called infrastructure bill that has about maybe 10 to 15 percent of what we would deem traditional infrastructure in it, um, as it gets out there to what 2.3, 2.4, 2.5 trillion dollars. And you know, it used to be that we would talk about a billion here and a billion there, and pretty soon you're talking about real money. Well. Unfortunately, now for the federal government, a billion is just simply a rounding error. Um, And so this bill comes in, and I think you're right, Tim. I think he's trying to clean up some of the mess that he made early on, particularly the Keystone XL pipeline. I mean, that was a union-only construction job that was providing work for you know thousands of union workers. And notwithstanding the fact that Joe Biden said he was going to end that project if he got elected to the White House. Union officials from the Pipe Fitters Union and the Operating Engineers and the Lyuna Building Trades and other unions who were working on that job, you know, they endorsed Joe Biden. And on the very first day of his presidency, he signs an executive order that puts them all on the unemployment line. So Richard Trunka, the president of the AFL-CIO, when he was interviewed by HBO a couple weeks after, he said, he goes, yeah, we were kind of disappointed he didn't pair it with other things. Well, this $2.3 to $2.4 trillion infrastructure bill – 
I think, is that so-called pairing. Even though it won't do anything for the pipe fitters and the operating engineers down the unemployment line, it's going to do a whole lot for union officials in trying to attract more workers. And I, I shouldn't say the word attract, trying to force more workers into unions specifically. All right. Of course, that's right into your wheelhouse when we're talking about right to work. Uh, and a big part of uh, these bills that they've been pushing as well, uh, something that we talked about the last time you were here, is basically an effort to end right to work across the country. And you guys are making a full court press trying to fight against that and protect uh, an individual's right to be able to work and not be forced to join a union. But uh, this effort uh, with infrastructure, you know, I, I have it on good authority, Mark, that uh, according to my Democratic overlords, I, I mean the office holders currently, uh, that everything is infrastructure now. So how dare yeah. we question that? Yeah, child care, uh, health care. Um, and, and here, Tim, this is one interesting. I, I have this, uh, this little uh, definition of what the infrastructure bill has it in, and there's, there's $25 billion spent for and I'm quoting here, in funding to support ambitious projects that have tangible benefits to the regional or national economy but are too large or complex for existing funding programs. So I don't know what that is, but I'm worried about it. Um, but more specifically, to your point, I mean, the bill also contains what Biden calls requests for Congress. And one of the things that he is requesting is that the Congress include the language of the so-called PRO Act, the bill that's already passed the House of Representatives, and a bill that actually would repeal all 27 right-to-work laws with, with Joe Biden's signature immediately. These are state laws that have been passed since 1947 um, under the Federal Labor Authority that basically gave states the privilege of passing these bills that would outlaw the closed shop unionism uh, that existed from 1935 to 1947. They said if a state could, by affirmative vote, outlaw forced unionism, closed shops, they could do it, and they did. Twenty-seven states have done it, five in the last nine years. Um, but that's gotten the ire of union officials, and so the bill that, that Biden and the language Biden wants in the, quote, instructions of the infrastructure bill include appealing all right-to-work laws. Now, I don't know what, what forcing workers to pay union dues to get or keep a job has to do with infrastructure and or helping individual employees, but I'll take – Joe Biden at his word, as Richard Trumka did, you know, he says he's a man of his word, and he uh, he says he's going to try to grow organized labor, not necessarily help workers, but grow organized labor. And this bill is a real big head start to all of that. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I think those are some pretty important distinctions that you're making, too, that very few people take the time to unpack. Uh, I I miss the days, Mark, when when we had a lot of people who understood that critical thinking should be applied to anything that's being told to you from uh, a media outlet or especially directly from a politician. Uh, the idea of paying close attention to the words that are being used, I don't know that it makes that much of a bite anymore, though, uh, considering – that there is a group of politicians that seem to think that they can change the language to mean whatever they want at any given point in time. Uh, is this one of those major uh, roadblocks that you guys keep encountering over at the Right to Work or, uh, Committee uh, in trying to communicate the real dangers of some of this stuff where people just either A, aren't paying close enough attention or B, aren't really – uh, understanding what's actually being said. 
Well, Tim, that that is a fantastic point and something that I'll spend just a bit of time here because, you know, this bill that they have that repeals the right to work law is calling is called the acronym is the PRO Act. Oh, it says Protecting the Right to Organize Act. And everyone, you know, yeah, that sounds like a good thing. It's kind of like the Clean Water Bill and the Clean Air Act. And little did we know that under the Clean Water Bill, we were going to have to add add things to the water in order to meet the designations in the legislation. So to your point, sometimes these names are exactly the opposite of what they're intended to be. And in this case, the federal law already protects, and most state laws already protect the workers' right to organize if they choose to they want to organize voluntarily. That right is protected. The law protects them in that access and that, and that opportunity. But this bill, basically by repealing right-to-work laws – by creating this so-called card check certification process where you eliminate the secret ballot election where workers can vote in private whether or not they want to be represented by a union, allowing the federal government to impose contracts on private businesses and employees if they don't get to a union contract quick enough, um, allowing secondary boycotts where union officials can protest and picket at a customer's location designing to put – pressure on the target by attacking their customers. That's been illegal under the law for, for since geez, 1935 or 1947, actually, and they're going to restore that. So that creates opportunities for union officials to gain more power. They also have eliminating the so-called gig and, and freelancer economy. The Uber and Lyft drivers are going to have to be employees now so they can be unionized. And, you know, those Uber and Lyft drivers, some, most of those guys are making, gals are making decisions about when they want to go work, when they, where do they want to go to work, where they want to drive, when they want to drive, what time they want to turn their machines on. That's no good for union officials. They don't like that because they can't organize them as independent contractors. So we're going to reach into the uh, – into the depths of the California legislative morass and pull language out of there and apply it nationally that eliminates jobs for many, many individuals who are doing things on the side or have a what we call a side hustle. If they're writing stories for websites or for newspaper content or, or you know, television content, if they write too many stories, they become employees. And the, basically the people that ask them to write say, I don't want an employee, so they lose work, and that happened in California. It also has – uh, union, the requirement that employers give union officials the names and addresses and cell phone numbers and work shifts of every employee in a workplace. I mean, private information that if I gave it to you on behalf of my employees, I would be breaking the law. But these are the types of things that are not about workers' rights. They're about union rights. But yet, to your point, Tim, we have this rhetoric, this flowery rhetoric that talks about, oh, well, we want to give out these people these rights. Well, the rights that are being granted, or the privileges, I should say, being granted, are being granted to a very narrow group of people that have control and power out of all proportions of their numbers as is, and this will only make it worse. Is is this, do you think, still possibly still uh, an effort at lip service, though, to the unions? Because, I mean, just just the other day – Secretary of State Blinken uh, was talking about the climate change agenda and made the statement that Americans that relied on old industries will be forced to find new work. Basically, the old line of learn to code, which seems to be a <laughs> uh, getting to be kind of a, a refrain uh, from Biden and company even before he uh, took office. Uh, is there a risk, do you think, that if they uh, can't get this through that they will finally lose their uh, – their kind of, I guess, alliance, if you will, with the unions, or will this be enough to placate them and even stand beside them as they move forward with this climate change agenda? 
Yeah, there, there's the rub right there for a lot of rank-and-file workers. I mean, Joe, Joe Manchin, Senator Manchin, was at the National Press Club yesterday with the president of the United Mine Workers Union, and they were talking exactly the way you just mentioned this, that, you know, look, we've got to do away with coal jobs. Well, in West Virginia, that means something, and it's amazing that you know, a union president who curries favor with the, with the White House and with the president of the United States would stand you know, in, a, in the National Press Club and say, yeah, we've got to move away from coal jobs. I mean – I guess you have to change the name of the United Mine Workers unless you're going to mine. I, 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 maybe, maybe I guess we bury carbon dioxide now or pump it into the ground. Maybe that would be the new role of, of, of the miners. But, yeah, there is a real conflict there. And certainly when you, when you, you know, stop the Keystone XL pipeline, you look for more pipelines to shut down, you regulate and eliminate new exploration on federal lands in a state like New Mexico where 60% of the, of the acreage out there is federal land and, and energy is the primary you know, business of New Mexico, that's going to put a lot of union workers out of work. And I guess, to your point, uh, that they can go ahead and make, you know, they can code or you know, they can create, you know, be involved in, in kind of electrical activity. I mean, this infrastructure bill has, uh, you've got to build like 500,000 charging stations across the country by year 2030. Um, they're going to invest in the electric vehicle market. I, the federal government's going to do that with $174 billion. Um, I guess they believe these are opportunities for people that have been working in, you know, manufacturing or in the oil and gas business or the coal business um, for, throughout their lives. I, I hope they can be retrained, but it doesn't sound like a, quote, union-friendly agenda at all. It sounds like one that should become a, a major conflict to folks that are the, the so-called union leaders, uh, the union bosses in Washington, D.C., who are supposed to be representing their workers. Yeah, I suppose uh, the miners may need to learn to mine Bitcoin because if Biden keeps spending uh, the kind of money we're looking at now, <laughs> the dollar bill is going to be pretty much useless. Uh, kind of circling back around to uh, the infrastructure slash jobs plan itself, is there any merit that, that you see to the actual jobs part of this jobs plan, or is this all just – political payoff well tim you know I, I, as far as infrastructure is concerned the idea of a, of a sturdy and reliable road and transportation system bridges that kind of thing i mean that makes sense in the common definition of infrastructure but frankly you know is this a federal obligation at all i mean states if i don't know where you where you are but in virginia we have a pretty healthy gas tax and that money is supposed to go into the highway fund it never does they use it for other things um, and so the, the whole country's come to rely on the federal involvement in the so-called infrastructure sector. You know, the idea that local bridges and roads should be the responsibility of local government, but because we can, over the course of time, we can take it from 49 states and focus it on one state, no one ever realizes how much it costs. You know, but the the idea of creating jobs that way, when well, let me put it this way, Tim, uh, because when they shut down the XL pipeline, you know, the union officials said, well, they were only temporary jobs because they're construction jobs. Well, isn't the whole Jobs Act, isn't Biden's Jobs Act predicated on on basically construction, those so so-called shovel-ready jobs that Obama talked about, you know, four years ago or five years ago or eight years ago or whatever it was? I mean, I think there's they're using this vehicle and they're using, to your point, I mean just unbelievable amounts of money, of fiat money, that is – it's a very dangerous thing for the future. Maybe not your future and my future, Tim, but certainly maybe not even our children's future, but our grandchildren. Holy mackerel. I mean what have we spent in the last uh, you know, 12 months? Uh, $7, billion, $7 trillion, $6 trillion, something like that. 
So the idea that, that the government can keep spending on projects like this, where basically you know, somewhere in the area of 10% to 12% is, own, is really traditional infrastructure, it's just more you know, government can command and control economy is what it turns out to be, I think. All right. I, I tend to think that you're absolutely right, as usual, sir. Uh, and yeah, I, I'm afraid all those shovel-ready projects, uh, uh, they're still not as shovel-ready as uh, Barack thought they were, and I would love to get him on the record saying that again. Uh, real quick, Mark, uh, uh, thank you so much for uh, – coming back on with us and uh, talking about this, especially uh, given that this is a topic that's probably still going to be overshadowed by the news of the day. And uh, it's part of what I'm afraid is going to allow to work as a distraction and let these people get further along with this type of action than they should ever be allowed to. Uh, but uh, again, I, I want to give you an opportunity before we let you go to uh, share the websites. And uh, if you're active on the social media, to feel free to share your handles wherever you would like, and basically anything at all you would like to put out, uh, go right ahead, sir. Well, Tim, thanks again for the opportunity, and, and folks who have more questions about the infrastructure bill or legislation in their particular state or legislation that's pending in Congress, they can go to the National Right to Work Committee webpage, which is NRTWC. NRTWC.org, and there they can find a map of the right-to-work states. They can find out information about what's going on in their state legislatures, if they're still meeting and still passing uh, new laws that, uh, that you'll be uh, beholden to. You can find out what's happening there. Those laws that we track are all focused on union, additional union power and privilege and how it affects workers across the country. They can also find the bills we're tracking in the United States Congress, bills that, to your point, you know, are kind of overshadowed by the news of the day, if you will. But these, these power grabs continue to march continuously on, and, and they're going to make it to the Senate. They're going to get through the House for the most part. They're going to make it to the Senate, and you just need to stay abreast of all that. If you have questions about your rights, your legal rights, you can go to nrtw.org. That's our foundation website. We have 21 staff lawyers who do nothing but represent employees for free. We help to protect their rights in America's workplace. If you feel like your rights have been violated by forced unionism, you can call and talk to a lawyer for free. We've taken employees to the United States Supreme Court 18 times in our history since 1968. At any given time, we have about 260 cases pending on behalf of workers. We're suing unions. We're suing businesses who would violate individual employee rights, and, and it's really gratifying work to meet the type of people that have the courage to stand up and fight for their rights. So you can find us at those two sites and – and obviously, um, I, I'm not a big tweeter. We have some people that tweet, and so I assume we have some kind of right-to-work handle. But uh, you can find that on the website, Tim. I'll just leave it at that. All right. Fair enough. Again, thank you so much for joining us again. And uh, you know, keep up the great work, sir. Bill, uh, uh, really uh, supportive of the work you're trying to do. I think that every individual should have a right to gainful employment no matter where they are and not be forced into a union. And sadly, in times like these, we need uh, the efforts that you and your organizations are doing more than we have, uh, well, in quite a while. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. It's been some time. Uh, again, thank you so much, sir, and uh, I look forward to our next opportunity to speak. My pleasure, Tim. Thank you. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mark Mix. As I said, he is, of course, the president 
of the National Right to Work Committee, and he's also the uh, acting president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Fund. And I think I may have uh, the links in the show description uh, kind of crossed up. I think I'm sending you uh, – the National Right to Work Committee is probably sending you to the Legal Defense Fund. Uh, So I probably need to go back and make some changes uh, in there. All right. I want to give a quick shout-out, too, to a couple of folks uh, that are hanging out in the uh, late night in the Midlands chat. Uh, We've got Arizona – uh, anti-hero hanging out as well as uh, Christopher. Christopher's got snow where he's at, and strangely enough, we've got 70-plus degree weather uh, here where I'm at in East Tennessee, but tomorrow uh, the temperatures are supposed to drop enough that there's a chance that we may have some snow, but that's a it's a good-looking picture uh, of some snow that uh, Christopher's posted there. All right, so uh, let me go ahead and uh, take that mid-hour break. And uh, I guess I'm probably going to circle back around to the Shobit uh, uh, trial just a little bit for those that tuned in late. And I will probably say my piece and try to get all of it off my chest uh, tonight unless, of course, new things develop. So stay with me. Let me uh, work in everything that I should have last uh, hour but did not for uh, timing reasons. Which means a uh, a little message from the late night in the Midlands crew as well. Uh, In the meanwhile, you guys don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. As Americans moved west in the late 1700s, preachers braved the harsh elements, lack of roads, and threat of Indian attacks to take the gospel to the pioneers. Hello, I'm Ron Edwards on today's page from the Edwards Notebook. Minister Francis... Asbury traveled nearly 300,000 miles on horseback and preached 16,000 sermons. An army of Methodist circuit riders was inspired to go wherever the pioneers went. In the span of time, the denomination grew in number from 300 to over 200,000 members with 2,000 ministers, most of whom had little formal education. The Methodists also supported liberty for enslaved blacks in America. Similarly, the Baptists sent out farmer preachers who joyfully spread the gospel despite little education and meager wages. The preachers were in touch with the pioneers' lives with a heavy emphasis on the need for a personal conversation and salvation from sin through faith in Jesus Christ. Those valiant ministers spread the gospel far and wide. The Baptists made it easy for committed lay people to be involved in God's kingdom work. As we the people reinvigorate the effort to spread the unadulterated gospel and seek providential guidance, perhaps the mission to make America great again will be fulfilled. What say you? I'm Ron Edwards. Check out the RonEdwards.com. Sponsored by the Tri-County Liberty Coalition. Hey folks, make sure you get over to LateNightInTheMidlands.com and join our mailing list so we can keep you informed of what's coming up next with Late Night in the Midlands. After all, we cover everything. 9 p.m. This is Dan Perkins with your Songs and Stories for Soldiers, Veterans Tip of the Day. The VA is working closely with the Center for Disease Control and Prevention and with other federal partners to provide COVID-19 vaccines as quickly and safely as they can. The VA knows that you have lots of questions and information is changing so fast, so please check back to the VA.gov website for updates. 
and they will continue to update the website on a regular basis to give you the latest information. If you find yourself not enrolled in the VA, but you need a COVID-19 vaccine, then go to the va.gov and locate the nearest VA facility to you so you can reach out and find out how you can schedule your vaccine shots. If you happen to be not only a veteran, but a spouse of a veteran or caregiver or a CHAMP VA recipient, the VA will contact you and let you know when your vaccine shot will be ready. This has been your Songs and Stories for Soldiers, Veterans Tip of the Day. This is Dan Perkins, and thanks for listening. Late nighters around the world, listen up. The shop is here, and you can order LNM radio flags right now. And show your friends and your neighbors you're awake by wearing one of our many shirts including our Stop the Censorship shirt. That one is a hot seller, so get yours while supplies last. We have coffee mugs, cloths, so never miss your favorite show, book, mouse pad. Just go to latenightinthemidlands.com and click the shop link. That's latenightinthemidlands.com and get to shopping. Hey, Late Nighters. Keep up with all things LNM Radio by joining our mailing list. Just go to the bottom of the homepage and fill in the Stay Informed form. Then click the Get Latest News button. You will get everything from guest info and show info and other important station-related information. So sign up now and get a special promo offer just for email subscribers. Is not this simpler? Is this not your natural state? It's the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation. The bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for power, for identity. You were made to be ruled. In the end, you will always kneel. Well, some words from George Soros is what I was looking for. Uh, It turns out that's close enough. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for staying with me through that very brief break. And I went ahead and got some extra late night uh, spots in there because uh, he didn't get enough of them in in the last broadcast. I got all jambled up with the crazy techno crap that happened on this side of the microphone. And, uh, well, you know, got things worked out. At any rate, I had some folks pop in and then pop out of the uh, chat room uh, over here at BTR. Uh, Vorpal Byte was in for a bit uh, and uh, bounced back out. Chief has left. I thought maybe he had just uh, possibly gotten uh, bounced out, as occasionally happens here. Uh, But uh, if that had been the case, I would have expected to see him sign back in. So hopefully – all is well over there. Uh, normally he hangs around and uh, tries to make fun of the way that I say Minneapolis and, uh, you know, those kind of things, especially given that it's in the news. Uh, for those of you that missed the first hour of the show, I basically kind of started off with my emotional take uh, where clearly justice and rule of law have not been fulfilled. Uh, The duty of the jury was not taken into account, but uh, I'm kind of bouncing around between 
whether or not I should be angry at the jury or not because the truth of the matter is these jurists, they were intentionally put in the crosshairs. I mean they were. The judge refused to sequester them from the beginning. In fact, the judge did literally everything in his power to achieve this result. He, he literally did. Uh, first and foremost, the request – to move this trial should have been granted. This is obviously the kind of case where, I mean, it is textbook why they ever allow uh, moving a trial from one location to another because George Floyd's death has never been more than one sentence away from the lips of most people living in and around the city of Minneapolis. George Floyd's name has rarely been more than two or three sentences away from every media talking head and legacy media outlet since that brief eight minutes that we got to see. Eight minutes that, while very brief in comparison to the full video footage available, does still feel like an eternity to watch. I, like a lot of people… I reacted very harshly to that snippet of video. It seemed pretty cut and dry. But that's a perfect example of why due process is necessary. And the video footage from the body cams of the other officers at play make it very clear that Chauvin spent the majority of the time in that prone position where he had his knee on Floyd on his shoulder. Not on the back of his neck, even though it looks like that from multiple angles from the folks out in the crowd. But from the very beginning, this judge did things I mean, should have allowed this trial to be moved. Now, I don't know where you could have went in this country, and it would have been much better. It had been politicized and nationalized, and just – it was all over the place. So the odds of you finding a jury – that even had two or three members in that jury pool who had no idea. It would be pretty slim. I mean maybe some far-off area in Alaska maybe you know, where they just – they're not watching television, hadn't, hadn't listened to radio or anything. I, I don't know. I don't know if such a place still exists where you could have found a jury pool that didn't know anything about this trial, that would not have already been tainted in some fashion. So maybe that part of the argument uh, that there was no reasonable remedy that can be offered by moving the trial, maybe that's legitimate. But you still could have found some location where you had a better chance of getting a jury pool that would have been fair-minded. It should have been moved. It should not have stayed in the state of Minnesota. It should not have. Now, that's just my opinion. What's that worth? Obviously not much. Fair enough. But then to have a full week, and, and again, I talked about this. Well, I talked about it back in the first hour tonight. I talked about it quite a bit uh, a few other nights because it's insane. I, I am not an attorney. As I'm sure most of you know by now. But even I know that prejudicial 
testimony that brings no merit to the case should be rejected. The defense should have objected to each and every one of those first weak witnesses from the prosecution. But by rights, they shouldn't have had to. The judge should have tossed them out from the very beginning. The judge should have let them call them, and then as soon as they sorted into the – tell us about how you felt the day that Derek Chauvin murdered a man in the streets. The minute that started, the judge should have asked the prosecution, do you have any probative questions for this witness? It, it should have been all tossed out. You literally had a week, a week of testimony from the prosecution that had no merit, no bearing on the case whatsoever. It was just people who had been there and had a feeling. Well, anybody who saw the video had a feeling. I was right there with all you guys to begin with, uh, all you uh, wild-eyed protesters. This looked like a clear-cut case of just police – well, brutality would be a, a fair word here. It looked as if Derek Chauvin had committed a heinous act that even then I still wasn't willing to say was murder, although I may have I, at the earliest stages, but certainly manslaughter. But you see, something happened. I saw the rest of the footage from, from that video, not just that little eight-minute clip, but the 47 minutes and some odd seconds, nearly 48 minutes, the full 48 minutes of availability. And what I ended up seeing were police officers that went out of their way to try to accommodate George Floyd, that went too far with it actually. They should have never let him out of that cruiser. They should have never let him get on the ground in the first place. I saw Derek Chauvin's attention pulled away from George Floyd because the crowd was getting belligerent. I saw him have to go for his mace and prepare to use it to try to get people in the crowd to back away. This is part of the reason why he did not notice when George Floyd fully lost consciousness. Part of the reason why he didn't offer medical assistance right out the gate. I didn't hear a single person suggest that perhaps the crowd, at least the parts of the crowd that were harassing the officers, that they too might have somehow shared some level of responsibility for the death of George Floyd. I, I haven't heard anyone make that assertion. I myself have not directly made that assertion, but I suppose you could say that uh, there's a certain level of connectivity. Maybe I am saying you could add this particular dot and then connect that dot to the other dots that led to the death of George Floyd. George Floyd was no hero. George Floyd was no saint. He was a criminal. And a drug addict. And in the latest days going into the trial, uh, the prosecution tried to, to make this case of repainting that drug addiction as being victimized because he was addicted to painkillers, and it was a terrible tragedy. And 
The truth of the matter is, it is. George Floyd should have never lost his life that day. But he shouldn't have been there at the convenience store trying to pass off this fraudulent document appearing to be tender. He shouldn't have had the cops called on him in the first place. He shouldn't have been in the car with this drug dealer. He shouldn't have had a lethal dosage level of fentanyl in his system. He shouldn't have tried to hide other drugs that he had in the car once he saw the cops by swallowing them. And it is perfectly okay for the jury to not be reminded that this is a man who had been involved with uh, burglaries, committed acts of violence, had held a gun to the stomach of a pregnant woman in an effort to rob her. Yeah, this was not a good guy. He's not a nice guy. I'm okay with withholding that type of information from the jury, not allowing that testimony to be considered because that previous behavior as far as his criminality, it's not really relevant here. But you know what was relevant? What was relevant is that there was a pattern that he has tried to hide illicit drugs in his position before by trying to swallow them. That that should have been well documented, should have been considered, and should have created that most magical of circumstances when it comes to a trial like this, reasonable doubt. See, Derek Chauvin doesn't have to prove his innocence. That's, that's the great part about our judicial system. The accused doesn't have to prove their innocence. It's up to the state to prove their case. And even though you may feel on a multitude of occasions that that lets way too many guilty people walk, and hey, it does, it's still one of the best protections the innocent have. Do you know how you can prove your innocence of something you've been accused of? It's not that easy, especially if it's something that you've never actually done. And as cynical as our society has become today, how would you even prove you've never done a thing? How would you prove that you don't know how to do something? Because you could always be faking. If the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. Well, did that glove fit? Sure didn't look like it, but it didn't look like O.J. was trying too hard to put it on, did it? It's very difficult to prove your innocence, and that's why proving your innocence, especially in a murder case, it's not the legal bar. And I promise you, ladies and gentlemen, no matter how you feel about this case, if it was you standing in front of a jury of your peers… Facing a similar charge, you would want that jury to not be influenced by outsiders. You would want that jury to not be influenced by potential rioters, by people that are going to dox you and show up at your house and put pig's blood all over your porch and your doors and your walls and leave a uh, freaking pig's head on your uh, doorstep. There's been at least three people that have gotten that treatment, although one of them, they actually got the wrong house. It was a former, a former residence 
You want to tell me that doesn't play into your decision? You want to tell me that those people went back there and deliberated and didn't have in their minds how bad will the rioting get tonight if we don't give them the, quote, right verdict? Not the correct one, the right one. By the rule of law, murder two, the state didn't make their case. There was more than enough, even with what the judge allowed, and the judge didn't allow uh, all the evidence that probably should have been allowed that would have further made the case of, at the very least, reasonable doubt. But the state failed to make their case. They didn't get to that level. I already talked about the first week of testimony that was nothing about but the people that showed up. Hey, oh, by the way, I walked by, and there was a crowd, and I said, hey, what's going on here? And then I saw this police officer uh, on the back of this guy over there, and I'm like, hey, buddy, that's not right. And then I went home and later and found out the guy died, and, and that just made me feel weird. Okay, so I'm making fun a little bit. Again, you you had the clerk, the cashier clerk at the convenience store who called the cops who talked about how he's not been able to sleep. You had some people in the crowd that saw it from the beginning, and, and they've had trouble dealing with it. They just have these images over it. And I get being dramatized. I do. I when you see somebody die in that – and from the angle you're at, it looks as bad as that part did. I understand being traumatized, but what does that have to do with whether or not Derek Chauvin was responsible for his death? Nothing, not a bit. And then the first two to three days of the prosecution's second week when they actually started trying to build their case… Most of their witnesses did a better job for the defense than they did for the prosecution. Again, go visit Legal uh, Insurrection. It's a great website. They had the best overall coverage of what happened in that courtroom and one of the few places where you can actually find out what the defense actually did and how the prosecution witnesses in those first few days actually made blunder after blunder. Now, the prosecution did a little bit better job in the last couple of days. Before they rested their case. But even in their closing arguments, the state just wanted you to feel away. And then somehow thought that, I don't know, maybe Dr. Seuss had paid them a visit. Obviously, they didn't get the memo that Dr. Seuss has been canceled. Trying to make the little bit about, now, people have tried to tell you that George Floyd died because his heart was too large, but. Really, after seeing all the evidence, you now know that Derek Chauvin's heart is just too small. But, uh, but it, maybe it grew three sizes that day. I don't mean to be so flippant, but I'm feeling like mob rule won the day rather than rule of law. And I feel that way with good reason. Now, I don't know what was in Derek Chauvin's heart. I don't know uh, how well uh, Derek actually knew George Floyd. Now, again, that was one of those things that was talked about quite a bit early, and then it kind of fell by the wayside. That they had worked together as security at this same club, that maybe they had some kind of beef from before. But again, the, the murder, too – 
the state didn't make the case. Reasonable doubt was well established. If you were looking at this through the lens of ignoring everything from the media and ignoring everything out on the streets, and you were just looking at the case as it was presented, the state didn't meet the burden. Reasonable doubt was clearly established by the defense, period. Now, murder three that had been uh, tossed and then reinstated by the judge, again, that reinstatement was based on a twisting of Minnesota law. Murder three, as it was offered up in this case, as it was charged, requires a heinous act being propagated with reckless endangerment to multiple targets, meaning uh, I used the example back in the first hour. In order for me to be charged with this crime in Minnesota, I would have to uh, pull out a gun and just start shooting uh, randomly into a crowd. If anybody dies, I'm guilty of murder three on that case. The depraved heart uh, murder is essentially the phrasing here. means that I was just reckless. I wanted to kill somebody. It didn't matter. See, murder ordinarily requires, uh, in order to get a conviction, some level of premeditation. The murder, too, actually still requires uh, there to have been an act of a uh, felony already taking place. So they're trying to say that you should just already assume, you should already just accept that what Derek Chauvin did in holding George Floyd down in that position, that was already a felony. I never heard that case actually made. The manslaughter. The manslaughter is the only charge that there should have even been an outside shot at. That outside shot was a small one because, again, the prosecution didn't make the best of arguments there. I heard the example used earlier today that uh, basically in this case you're trying to state that, yes, there's a series of circumstances, but without the actions of this individual, it would have been okay. So. Again, uh, the example that I heard used was like if a mugger jumps out and scares you uh, and while you're near a subway, and because of the fear that you had from being scared, uh, you fall down onto the train tracks, and then you're killed by the train, uh, then you can still charge the attempted mur uh, mugger because they're responsible for the action. Without their action, uh, the likelihood of you falling and being killed would would be extremely, extremely minuscule. But that's not what happened here. Now, did Derek Chauvin uh, – was his actions the primary reason? Did he jump out and scare him? No. What he did was subdue him. Utilizing a hold that was approved at the time by the Minneapolis Police Department. Minneapolis Police Department, uh, he wasn't even using the actual hold. He had all of the weight up on his shoulder. Again, that's why none of the autopsies uh, found damage to the neck and throat region because he didn't have the pressure there. So then what did kill? George Floyd. 
Now, I am convinced that it was the drugs. I have expressed it, but it's still just my opinion. Okay, so grain of salt. Take it for what it's worth. I wasn't there. Could it have been the drug overdose along with the heart condition? Because everybody tried to, the the prosecution tried to make the case that oh sure yeah he he had the fentanyl a potentially lethal dose of fentanyl in the system, but he had developed an immunity to the fentanyl at those levels, so it wouldn't have killed him. Can you guarantee me uh, their prosecution? That that level of fentanyl, even with the immunity, would not have uh, contributed to a heart event, considering he had that, what was it, a 75, 78% blockage, something of that nature. Pretty serious heart. It was a freaking ticking time bomb. He overdid it in the drugs. He had a heart condition. He had the delirium, the excited delirium as a result of being too stoned. He had all these things going. Now, the one thing that the cops being involved there did is probably elevated his blood pressure a little bit more, but is that what killed him? Did you make that case? The state did not, but all this is predicated, and all the celebrations and all the people, including Trey Gowdy for crying out loud, oh, well, justice was served. All of that is predicated on the fact that, yes, Derek Chauvin must have been the primary cause of death. It's still all based on the feeling we got from watching just that small snippet of eight minutes of a video from that one angle that really makes it look really, really bad. So where are we at? Where are we at? Are are the people in Minneapolis safer tonight? Maybe. But what's next? I mean, they were already promising. I mean, right out the gate, they were already promising. This is just the first step. We're going after more now. This crowd will never be satiated. And now they've got a taste for blood. Part of me does understand why the jury went the route they did. I doubt seriously that there are very many people that were in that deliberation that honestly felt like they should have been voting guilty. But I get why they did. Part of me half expected it. But I told you over and over again based on as the case was going, uh, the case wasn't being made. If they follow the rule of law, there's going to be some very unhappy people. Well, they're happy tonight, but they're not happy that they won this battle. They're not happy that the mob rule won. They're happy because there's one down, time to move on to the next. Here's hoping that you or me aren't that next. Like I said in the first hour of tonight's show, if I was a police officer, any level of law enforcement… I don't think I would go into my next shift. In fact, I don't know that I would ever go back to the job. Not now. It's open season. Every police officer in this country is now a target, more so than you were before. Every one of you. Because now there is literally nothing you can do within the rules 
and still be treated as if you did the job correctly. I mean, people are getting fired over, say, uh, due process, right? Employees of our city are all entitled to due process before we do anything or make any announcements. Well, you're fired, city manager. Also in Minnesota. That's going to have to be it for tonight, guys. I, I'm i emotionally exhausted at this point. I am. I had a long day at the day job, and then catching this as I was driving into the studios, I just – I don't know. I may not be done talking about this yet. I, I want to be done talking about this. I want to move on. I, I want to see – Return to common sense. I wanted to spend some time talking today about the Biden Education Department prioritizing the critical race theory getting into all the schools across the country. So I probably will discuss that some uh, later this week. In the meanwhile, guys, please. Whatever you do, don't take my word for not one little bit of it. Be sure, however, not to just take at face value the word of anybody else. You do your own research. And most importantly, use your brain if you really want to tap into the truth. In the meanwhile, stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, come on, guys, be smart out there, even if it goes against your nature. <laughs> I'll be back tomorrow night. Ron Edwards will join me, and I'll have a special secret guest as well. Actually, if you read the show description beforehand, you'll know who it is. In the meanwhile, though, I'm out for now. Have a great night, everybody, and uh, I'm serious. Just stay safe. Good night.
Using both hands. 